Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome all of you to this uh, UNFSS Science Day side event on reforming agricultural policies to support food systems transformation. It's uh, a pleasure for IFPRI to co-host this side event with the Indian Council for International Economic Research, as well as the Academy of Global Food Economics and Policy based at the China Agricultural University. Uh, throughout this uh, um, seminar, we would very much like to hear from you uh, to participate in our Q&A session that will follow the presenters uh, and discussants remarks. Please be sure to submit your questions on ifpri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpri on Twitter. As you will hear today, uh, in, in every year between 2018 and 2020, governments of some 54 countries provided transfers to agriculture of around $720 billion per year. Not surprisingly, uh, given that that's not an unsubstantial amount of money, it has gotten the attention of um, uh, people interested to use that money perhaps in an alternative way to finance food systems transformation. Um, and this proposition of restructuring or repurposing agricultural support has in fact been put forward as a game-changing solution for the UN Food System Summit. So we're looking forward to a great discussion today. I'm gonna hand over to the Director General of IFPRI, Yo Swinen, to uh, get us going. Over to you, Yo. Thanks very much, Charlotte. Um, thanks uh, to all of you being here at the uh, Science Days at the side event for the United Nations Food Systems Summit. The topic is, as Charlotte already mentioned, and I'm sure you know, uh, on reforming agriculture policies to support food systems transformation. I think it's a really important issue, a really important topic. It's also one which is very high on the policy agenda. If you uh, go through, for example, a lot of the policy uh, um, proposals that have been on the table in the action tracks, etc. It comes back several times. It's also picked up in uh, declarations by the G20, for example, and a number of other policy fora. And so I think for that reason, it's really important that we have good information on a good understanding of the issue and of the potential impacts of some of the changes that are being proposed. Mm -hmm. We have a, a really fantastic lineup here today. Uh, we will start off with uh, Jonathan Brooks of the OECD. Uh, the OECD has done fantastic work over decades now of collecting information on agricultural policies in uh, many countries, increasingly more. And he will present the latest uh, report, the latest findings of the OECD, their calculation, their interpretation, and uh, what it implies. And I'm really happy that Jonathan is here to present it. Jonathan and I go a long way back in when we were grad students looking at some of these issues, which somehow still feels like yesterday, but it's actually quite a bit of time ago. Uh, then Rob Foss will uh, present uh, IFPRI's findings or uh, work that is done in IFPRI together with uh, colleagues from the World Bank on estimating how, if we change, if we reform those policies, whether how the impacts could be on, on global nutrition, on global uh, sustainability, the greenhouse gas emissions, etc. It's really exciting work. It is also very much work in progress. And uh, Rob will show some of the, the latest results there and also identify what we will plan to do further on this. Then um, an issue which is obviously very important in this debate is the political economy of this. I mean, the changes, uh, even if we know what needs to be done, what the effects will be that are desirable in terms of, of poverty reduction, in terms of uh, better, uh, better sustainability, uh, greenhouse gas mitigation, 
at a nutrition uh, effect, one still has to implement these reforms. And there, there is uh, often a lot of opposition against uh, some of the changes. Uh, an example was uh, just last week where the, after three or four years of negotiations on the future of the common agriculture policy in the EU, and this concerns several hundreds of billions of dollars that are going to be spent the rest of the decade, there has been an outcome and there's been a lot of debate how uh, we should interpret these results with this really effect on, on what they call greening or rather greenwashing and the debate there is not settled yet. So I'm sure the political economy issues will come back. I think there's also a big difference between rich and poor countries. I mean, most of these um, uh, subsidies are actually given in by um, middle-income countries and high-income countries, but of course, poor countries are very much affected as well. So that's an important dimension. And so we have uh, the people in the panel are eminent experts on this. We have Ashok Gulati with us. I'm, I'm very glad to see Ashok on the panel. He was at IFPRI uh, some time ago, but now he still uh, is very active in, in this field. Uh, Marie Ruel, our, the head of our nutrition and poverty and health division, will talk about some of the dietary issues and nutrition effects. And we have Leanne Jackson, the head of the agri-food trade and markets division of the OECD. And then to conclude today, I'm, I'm really excited that Schengen Fan is here. Schengen has played obviously a very important role at IFPRI in stimulating this type of research and is now very active from his uh, chair in China in working on these things. And as we know, China is uh, a lot of these uh, dollars are actually uh, spent in, in, in China subsidy system. So I'm really looking forward to this panel. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Yo. Uh, one more note on the program. Unfortunately, Jürgen Fugel of the World Bank is not able to meet us today, um, but the World Bank is, of course, uh, very interested in this uh, topic as well, and, and he sends us regrets. So with that, we will turn to our first presentation, um, which is uh, going to be given by Jonathan Brooks. He's the head of the Agricultural and Resource Resources Policies Division at the OECD. And we're very happy that he's going to present today the always much anticipated Agricultural Policy Monitoring Evaluation Report. And uh, Jonathan, I believe it was released just uh, less than about two weeks ago. So over to you, Jonathan. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Charlotte. And uh, yes, it's a good, good day, everyone. It's a, a pleasure to be able to, to join you. And I'd like to thank our colleagues at, uh, at IFPRI for organizing this UN Food Systems uh, side event. Um, in order to uh, stimulate the discussions, I'll present the headline uh, findings of the OECD's Agricultural Policy Monitoring and Evaluation Report which as uh, Charlotte noted was released recently, in fact, on the 22nd of June, and has a special focus this year on how agricultural policies can better address the needs of food systems. Um, next slide, please. So the, the, the central point uh, really that I'd like to make is that agricultural policies are not currently addressing those overall needs of food systems. Uh, we frame those in terms of what we've called a, a triple challenge of providing food security and nutrition. Uh, second, securing livelihoods for farmers and for others connected to the food chain. And third, to do so sustainable, uh, sustainably, that is to say, maintaining and enhancing natural resources while contributing to reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. And we maintain that two key roles exist for agricultural policy to further these challenges. The first is to promote sustainable productivity growth, and the second is to strengthen the sector's resilience. Uh, sustainable productivity growth 
is needed to feed a growing world population without degrading the resource base. And it's also essential to underpin real income growth. And of course, there can be no food security, assured livelihoods or sustainability without also building resilience, especially in a context of climate change. Yet, as constructed, agricultural policies are mostly not meeting those criteria. And accordingly, we argue that governments need to firstly phase out market price support and uh, associated trade policy uh, distortions. Second, target income support to households in need and where possible integrate uh, so those, those mechanisms of support into wider economy-wide social policies. And then thirdly, reorientate public expenditures towards the genuine provision of public goods, uh, in particular innovation systems. And I'll elaborate on those points. Uh, next slide, please. So in order to make this link, it's, I think it's helpful to refer to the, the overall total that, that Charlotte referred to in her introduction. So um, we cover 54 countries, which includes all OECD member economies uh, member countries, plus 12 emerging economies, uh, including the major agricultural economies, uh, with China and India being especially important to the overall global aggregates. Um, in preparing the numbers, we work closely with OECD country governments and with national partners in emerging economies, usually with strong links to the government um, in, and in the collecting these numbers. So, for example, we've worked closely with Ashok and colleagues at ICREA in developing the India PSE numbers and have similar collaboration in China. So of the, the, the overall total you'll see was uh, over 2018-20 averaged a total support of $720 billion a year. So that's nearly $2 billion a day. Um, either, and that was provided either through higher prices so that was about $272 billion, all through budget uh, support, of which there was $268 million. Of the budgetary support, um, uh, well, budgetary transfers, sorry, totaled across the whole uh, 54 countries, 447. And that was counteracted. We can see that there was negative market price support was provided in a few countries, uh, notably Argentina, uh, India, and Vietnam to a total of about 100, uh, 100 billion. So of the total transfer, so we've got this 720 billion, about 540 billion goes to producers. And that amount splits roughly evenly between price support, 272 billion, and budgetary support, 268 billion. So there's an even split there. And of the budgetary support, about 66 billion is provided in distorting forms, so output or input subsidies, which I'll refer to later, and about 200 billion in ways that are less distorting at the margin than those, those really distorting payments. But on the other hand, just over 100 billion is provided in payments to the sector, but not to farmers. And that includes critical investments in things like uh, research and uh, development, biosecurity infrastructure. So that's the general services element of the graph that you see in front of you. Uh, next slide, please. So that's the, the overall total across 54 countries, but producer support, that's the 540 billion, varies widely. So it's negative in Argentina, Vietnam, uh, and India, 
and rises to in excess of 40% of farm receipts in some OECD countries. Uh, in particular, we see um, uh, Japan, Korea, Switzerland, Norway. Um, the average across all OECD countries is about 17% of gross farm receipts coming through transfers, either in the form of higher prices or through budgetary payments. Next slide, please. So the distorting support, market price support and output and input payments still dominate many countries. And the key point is this undermines food security by impeding the efficient allocation of resources uh, the trade measures used uh, to maintain market price support weaken the balancing role of trade and contribute to price volatility. And they're also an inefficient and inequitable way of transferring income to farmers. A large share of support leaks to landowners or to suppliers of purchased inputs. And because you, how much you get depends on how much you produce, uh, they're, they're not an equitable way of targeting farmers either. And then by contrast, um, we see um, that, the, well, in addition, the policies also contribute to environmental pressures because they provide artificial incentives to expand and also to intensify production. So next slide, please. Um, so there's, there's about 200 billion of support I mentioned that's kind of less distorting at the margin. So it's less harmful in a sense, but it still doesn't address the needs of food systems effectively. And fundamentally, this money aims to support farmers' incomes, but it doesn't target low-income farmers on the basis of, of need. Um, and we see there was, a, you, you'll see in the graph here, there's a significant decoupling of support where the less distorting support now dominates in the European Union and, uh, and also in the United States. Uh, so it's less distorting at the margin than it used to be, but it's still not efficient, efficiently addressing these uh, objectives for the, for the sector. Um, and I would add that only 1.5 billion of that 720 is provided to producers for the explicit provision of public goods, such as ecosystem services. Uh, next slide, please. Now, if we consider the overall evolution of support policies, we see that there's been a substantial change in producer support over the past decade and most of that, that change has really all come in emerging economies. This is a two decade time, time frame here. And because of their size, um, uh, China and India dominate the aggregates here. And we've seen a, a growth in support to China, although interestingly, their use of direct payments contrasts uh, with the way in which uh, support was originally provided in OECD countries. India provides both positive support, mainly in the form of input subsidies, and negative support via suppressed prices. And I'm sure Ashok will have some, some comments on these developments. Uh, there's been overall little change over here over a two-decade period in OECD countries, although the first, the first part of the century saw a significant decoupling. But basically, in the last 10 years, there's been very little change in either the level or composition of support in OECD countries. Uh, next slide, please. So the final kind of point about the numbers is that just over $100 billion of support is provided as what we call general services to the sector. And spending on innovation systems is just 6% of overall expenditures in both OECD countries and emerging economies. 
despite evidence of high, of high return. So that's kind of the good cholesterol. So we're still high on the bad cholesterol and we're low on the good cholesterol here. Uh, next slide, please. So this slide reiterates the, the main conclusions that I, I and policy implications that I noted at the start. Uh, but it's important to note that the, the removal of price support and border measures will, of course, require flanking policies, social policies, uh, either for producers if prices are lowered or consumers if, if, uh, if price suppression is removed. Um, the shift away from across the board income support would require information to improve the targeting of that support. And it would also require a greater emphasis on developing risk management tools. And then the third element on reorienting public expenditures. I mean, there's a lot that can be done within agriculture there, including the reprioritizing uh, re of innovation systems. But of course, there's a wider agenda about social priorities for public spending, uh, which refers, I guess that's what people are referring to as the repurposing discussion. Um, next slide, please. So I guess my final point then to conclude is that now is a critical moment. Um, in a way, we missed a, an, an important opportunity for reform a decade ago because the food price crisis in a way was, was a good time to remove the comfort blanket of price support when, because prices were already high. And then the global financial crisis led to a period of austerity which, from which agriculture was curiously immune. And agriculture in that sense, uh, I think in some way it's like the, uh, the Sherlock Holmes story where Holmes refers to the incident of the dog in the nighttime. And um, the, the detective asked Holmes, he said, well, is there anything that you would like to draw my attention to? He said, well, Holmes says, well, I would draw your attention to the incident of the dog in the nighttime. And uh, the detective says, well, but the dog did nothing in the nighttime. And Holmes says that was the curious incident. Um, now, faced with the COVID, a need to recover from the COVID uh, pandemic, by contrast with a period of, of austerity, um, governments are kind of opening the taps in a way in terms of their expenditure. And there's obviously a need to, uh, to confront the climate emergency. The question is whether uh, whether countries will seize this fresh opportunity to reorientate their agricultural policies. And uh, now is a good moment, we would suggest, to focus on these criteria of promoting sustainable productivity growth and promoting a resilience as chief vehicles for delivering on these challenges facing the food system. Three major events in 2021 can help build momentum for such change the COP26 UN Climate Change Conference, the COP15 meeting on biodiversity, and of course, the UN Food Systems Summit. Uh, these are just meetings, of course, and beyond that, there'll be a need to seize the opportunity to translate the awareness that these meetings generate into specific national actions. Um, and just a final slide, if I can just conclude with a, a quick reference to so OECD that reports that have just come out lately that address some of these issues. Of course, there's the monitoring and evaluation report. Um, we released our outlook for agricultural markets earlier this, this week. And then I maybe uh, refer to the, the book, uh, Making Better Policies for Food Systems, which 
frames this wider debate and in which this work on agricultural policy seems seeks to situate itself. And I imagine that's something that my colleague Leanne will pick up on uh, later. So with that, thanks very much for your attention and I look forward to the, the discussion. Thank you very much, Jonathan, um, for that overview of, uh, of the report. We now turn to Rob Voss, who's the Director of the Markets, Trade and Institution Division here at IFPRI. And Rob, Jonathan said that by and large, the agricultural policies are not meeting uh, the challenges of uh, uh, facing food systems. So you're gonna take a look in particular at uh, two aspects, uh, two challenges. And one of them, of course, is that food systems are, are pretty high greenhouse gas emitters. So how can we uh, restructure policies to, to see a, a decline in those emissions while uh, keeping food security front and center? So over to you, Rob. Oh, thank you, Charlotte. And uh, also thank you, Jonathan, for introducing the latest OCD report. And as um, uh, you already mentioned, uh, Charlotte, uh, yeah, well, we'll be talking about uh, particularly what could be the implications of the agenda that uh, Jonathan set out at the end of his um, set of slides, um, uh, the uh, agenda for repurposing the agricultural uh, subsidies. So this is part of work that um, we've been doing uh, over the past year or so with uh, my team at, um, at IFPRI together with the World Bank and uh, ask ourselves just the question, how can we um, repurpose uh, this vast amount of, um, of agricultural support measures uh, spent every year um, to provide better incentives that would support sustainable transformation of the global food system. So we go to the next slide, which uh, sets out that research question. Um, the work so far that we've done, particularly focus in first instance, because that was the initial question, uh, to what extent the uh, current support measures contribute to more greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and then uh, we asked ourselves the question if we would um, repurpose to achieve uh, lower greenhouse gas emissions, what would then apply not just for uh, the environmental outcomes, but also for food security, um, poverty reduction, and other food system uh, outcomes. So go to the next uh, slide. Um, so it was already alluded to, um, so the keen interest from various parts of the World Bank is it's high on its uh, policy agenda where it comes to agriculture and uh, food system transformation. All the uh, UN Food System Summit uh, action tracks um, mentioned this as potential game change, uh, potential game changing action to change the um, uh, the current support measures in ways that's better aligned with the broader food system uh, objectives of transforming into more sustainable and healthier outcomes. Um, also the G20 has taken interest and, uh, and so there's this pretty broad interest uh, in this. So um, what I have to offer um, in the analysis that we've undertaken so far, um, we first studied uh, what happens if we eliminate all current support is to understand what impact it's having on food systems uh, at the moment. And then uh, we analyze expected outcomes from a range of repurposing uh, options. And the scenario analysis is based on our global um, general equilibrium model called Miragro T. 
step and we project um, scenario results forward between 2020 and uh, 2040. So sustaining the changes over time, we look at the cumulative effects uh, over time. Um, also, and that's um, an important aspect, uh, so we'll come back to that later to uh, discuss the political economy questions. So the scenario as we've done so far is assuming that there's some internationally concerted policy scenario where all countries agree to repurpose for the same purpose, for the same objectives uh, moving forward in order to study the uh, global outcomes. So that's not necessarily a likely uh, policy outcome, uh, but it's, uh, it's helpful uh, to understand uh, the potential for repurposing, but also to understand the need for uh, global, globally concerted uh, efforts. You go to the next slide. So, um, um, John's already referred to a few things, but let me just uh, quickly um, take some sustainability challenges of, uh, of the food system, looking from the supply side, from the supply sides uh, first. Um, um, and that's uh, partly due to the sustained support measures over time. We, uh, the good news is that food production uh, has increased quite a bit, uh, much faster than population growth. Um, and also much, much faster than the expansion of agricultural land. So that means that most of the productivity growth has come from uh, land intensification over time. But what we also observe more recently that agricultural productivity growth has been uh, slowing um, and uh, that the um, production um, volumes also have become more volatile, volatile uh, since the uh, 2000. So that's in the lower part uh, graph uh, where the blue line represents agricultural productivity growth and the red line, the degree of volatility, you can see the trend is uh, again moving upward over the past uh, 20 years. Go to the next slide. Um, climate change has lots to do with it. A recent uh, World Bank report uh, estimates that uh, more than 20% of the slowdown in productivity growth is uh, on account of uh, climate change that is already happening. Uh, that impact is intensifying and mostly hurting uh, tropical uh, agriculture, so the agriculture of uh, developing countries. And lastly, what we also know is that agriculture uh, remains a significant source of uh, global greenhouse gas uh, emissions. So um, uh, emissions is you know, from the uh, lower uh, right-hand side graph at the bottom from uh, emission from agriculture is still increasing, even though that for land use change is decreasing, uh, but then uh, the capacity of sequestration uh, has reduced and overall um, uh, in absolute terms, um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions are still uh, on the rise from agriculture. You go to the next slide. So John Sosa alluded to the agriculture support. These are numbers uh, that are older than what he presented. Uh, so here we would, for the scenario, we still were talking about 640 billion per year, but uh, the overall structure is similar to what uh, Jonathan presented. The important points to retrain from the discussion that currently developing countries are providing uh, most of the support. Um, that all the support's been sustained over long periods of time, um, and that uh, most of the support is uh, what uh, also Jonathan uh, labeled as market distorting. 
The one final point to retain uh, from these numbers here is that the significant part is into, from the support comes in the form of market price support through uh, border protection in particular, um, which um, uh, provides an incentive to agriculture production, um, but at the same time is not a category that's easily reallocated across uh, items because it's more of an imputed value, yet uh, implies an implicit fiscal uh, cost. Okay, if we go to the next slide. Um, so um, what do we find from our scenario analysis? First, from the re removal of all distorting supports, as a, meaning the coupled subsidies um, on imports, on output levels, as well as removing all uh, uh, border uh, measures to support. Uh, we find remarkably little impact, and that could be surprising uh, given um, the importance that of and the, the magnitude of the um, of the uh, supports provided. Um, the reasons for that is that there's all kinds of uh, adjustment mechanisms, uh, particularly um, if we, for instance, we remove uh, border uh, measures uh, that um, um, will lead to. Um, uh, higher sort of lower prices uh, and that has an impact on uh, on incomes and uh, but at the same time the subsidies um, uh, reduce productivity and that has adverse effects on um, on the economy and overall on balance what we find is a little overall economic effect very small impacts on poverty reduction um, uh, a slight increase in prices because of the loss in productivity that makes also uh, healthy diets uh, less affordable and uh, a very small impact on uh, greenhouse gas um, emissions. So overall, the answer is not let's phase out um, all of the uh, distorting uh, support because it, it will not take us very far in the direction of the, um, of the overall desired um, outcomes. If you go to the next slide. So then if we would uh, target the, um, <clears throat> the, um, the reduction of greenhouse gases, particularly after uh, running uh, various options, uh, but I'll just mention this one here where we uh, repurpose uh, the support towards poor investment in research and development that would uh, both enhance uh, productivity and reduce uh, emission uh, intensities. Um, um, and then uh, the support that remains are allocated to conditional payments to farmers to um, provide them incentives to actually adopt uh, those, um, those improved uh, technologies. So out of the range of scenarios that we've done, um, it's, we find that's very critical, particularly this emphasis on improve, not just reducing emissions if we want to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emission or emission intensity, but particularly enhancing uh, efficiency and enhanced productivity. So that overall gives uh, positive outcomes uh, in terms of overall welfare, uh, in terms of poverty reduction, um, making uh, the cost of uh, healthy diets more affordable uh, to poor people uh, and to people in general. Uh, significant up to 40% uh, decrease in, in greenhouse gas emissions uh, uh, globally and even more in uh, developed uh, countries um, in, under this concerted scenario. 
And the, the main trade-off and the single trade-off from the set of outcomes I'm presenting here is an adverse impact on the farm sector, mainly because of uh, the um, productivity effects on prices that uh, uh, in, uh, in real terms uh, relative to other prices uh, would uh, uh, decrease uh, real farm income. So that would be a major. So if you move to the, um, to the last slide and the main conclusions. So first, smart repurposing of subsidies uh, can achieve important societal gains in terms of more welfare, less poverty, less emissions, uh, incentives for uh, better uh, diets, uh, but only if we can retain um, uh, incentives to improve efficiency gains. So their innovation, what um, Jonathan is alluding to, or productivity increases are important. At the same time, we should not think these uh, changing the support measures is the panacea. We have to come with other interventions. Uh, we probably have to do also more on the demand side to um, yield uh, better outcomes. Uh, research and development per se is not important in the scenario I, I showed. It also comes along with improved provision of public goods in the form of infrastructure, education and food value chain, integration types of infrastructure. And um, lastly, what's important is we have to ensure that the farm sector does not lose out too much because that will provide additional political economy obstacles. Um, so first, um, it's very important from these scenarios to, to look at um, who are the winners and losers um, to assess what are feasible and societally uh, important uh, or um, desirable outcomes. Second, we've assumed um, uh, global scenarios, but uh, of course the outcomes we're measuring here are global with some differential impacts by country, but the policies are national. So what more should be done to make sure that these global goals can be aligned with um, uh, a national consultation of uh, policy reform. And lastly, uh, the gains that we're looking for are societal and long-term, whereas the action in food system is uh, by and large private. So without the proper incentives for uh, changing around uh, production through private sector agents and uh, consumption decisions by uh, consumers, um, we um, may not be able to find uh, the right type of consensus in the balance between um, short-term drivers and long-term uh, societal goals. So those are the political economy questions that would need to be addressed to further assess the feasibility of the implementation of these uh, scenarios. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Rob. Um, that concludes the presentations and we're now gonna move into uh, our discussants uh, section. We have three really stellar uh, discussants with us. And again, a note to the audience, we would love to hear from you. So please do submit your questions. Um, you can do that on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. So the first discussant I'd like to call on is uh, Marie Ruel, who's also with IFPRI. She, she serves as the director of the Poverty Health and Nutrition Division. And Marie, we, we heard Rob say that simply doing away with distorting support will not make a huge difference in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And, and the conclusion is that we need to be very clever in, in how we actually repurpose this kind of support. So, so there are no easy answers. 
he talked about climate change. I'd, I'd like you to focus a little bit on, on nutrition. Um, so to what extent do you think that the reform of agricultural policies could improve nutritional outcomes? Uh, can it generate a greater supply of uh, nutritious food? Can it help uh, accessibility, affordability of uh, nutritious food? And what else is needed? Is it enough to just look at these kinds of uh, restructuring or are there other policies that are going to be required to get us to where we need to go? Thanks, Marie. Thank you and uh, good morning, good afternoon and uh, good evening, everyone. Um, in my remarks, indeed, I will bring a slightly different perspective and shift the conversation toward the consumer and, and the consumer demand. Um, so there's a growing consensus that food systems need to do more than produce enough food to feed the growing population, but rather that they need to nourish the growing population, meaning that food systems need to ensure access to nutritious, healthy and safe foods that are culturally acceptable, affordable and sustainable and help consumers achieve a sustainable, healthy diet. So we're not talking about just food and in agriculture and food systems, often we focus on food, but really, we really need to think about diets, meaning having the right balance and proportion of foods from different groups that provide different nutrients and, and uh, protective elements. And this is critically important for addressing all forms of malnutrition from nutritional deficiencies like micronutrient deficiencies or underweight and wasting and stunting to overweight, obesity and risks of diet related non-communicable diseases. So we know from last year's SOFI report that food supply is not enough and that affordability is a major constraint uh, with 3 billion people in 2019 being unable to afford a healthy diet. So food supply is, 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 uh, is uh, when I said is not enough, it, it, is, it is growing and, and it is enough to feed the population, but it is not enough to, uh, for people, for consumer, consumers to actually uh, consume it because of uh, affordability issues. So. 3 billion people in 2019 not being able to afford a healthy diet is a very large um, size of population. And we also know that with the pandemic and related economic crisis, these numbers are expected to rise and have probably uh, been rising uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. So affordability is critical for some nutritious food and for food groups, especially those that have high income and price elasticities, such as animal source foods, for example, and especially red meat. But it's also a major trigger for consumption of unhealthy ultra processed foods, for example, where consumption increases rapidly with rises in income. But for some nutritious foods and for healthy diets, access and affordability are also not enough. There's a large gap between availability, access and affordability and consumption of certain nutritious foods and, and for making healthy dietary choices. So not only economic reasons motivate people uh, to adopt a healthy diet and we need to dig into what are uh, the, the factors that affect the demand for nutritious diets in particular. Um, so first, I'd like to give the example of vegetable and fruit, which is a unique example, because we have 
problems at every level. So we know that we have a supply problem with only 30% of the quantity of food, fruit and vegetable needed for everyone, the 400 gram per day being produced globally. So we really don't have enough of these products if everybody was interested in consuming this amount every day. Availability also differs widely between regions with Africa being the worst with only 13% of their population who can meet the recommended daily intakes. So we have a problem of supply. We also have a problem of affordability. We know that fruit and vegetables tend to be relatively expensive compared to other sources of calories. This matters a lot, especially for people who do not recognize their unique nutritional and health value. And for the poorest of the poor who have to focus on getting enough calories for their households. So fruit and vegetables are not a priority for them because they are relatively expensive per unit of calorie. We also have a, consum a consumption gap, especially for vegetables. When we look at income elasticities for vegetables in particular, we see some increases in vegetable consumptions as income rises, but mostly at the lower end of the income distribution. But rising incomes among wealthier households in, in the other areas of, of, of wealthiness is not associated with greater consumption of vegetables. And even the highest income groups, probably like all of us, are far short from meeting their requirements for vegetables and fruit. Um, and we need to get there because they are very protective for health. Um, so there are also other factors at play, preferences, culture, peer pressure, food safety concerns. These are all reasons for which people may not consume uh, as much fruit and vegetables as needed, but there's also factors like urbanization and the availability and promotion of ultra processed foods, which are usually very poor in fruit and vegetables, but they're tasty, convenient, and cheap. So there is a shift in, in the consumption of fresh, fresh product towards ultra processed foods that, um, that have the consequence of reducing, possibly reducing the intake of fruit and vegetables. But I brought this example to emphasize the need to bring the consumer demand squarely in food system transformation. Companies do a lot of research to understand consumer demand and sell processed foods that meet consumers' tastes, preferences, budget, and need for convenience. So we need to do the same for healthy foods and for healthy diets. We need, we need to first understand consumer demand and the drivers of dietary choices. We need to use this information to influence production decisions, to innovate in transport and storage and in reducing waste. Most nutritious foods, as we know, are highly perishable. We need to incentivize healthy processing, but also we need to educate consumers, promote and or subsidize healthy foods, uh, and not only punish uh, unhealthy foods, in, like in, in fiscal um, schemes, for example, where we discourage consumption of unhealthy foods, but we also need to reward consumption of healthy food and implement demand side policies, guidelines, and, and, and other actions um, to improve, to make it easier for uh, consumers to achieve a healthy and sustainable diet. Um, we do have a lot of tools, but we, we also need a lot more research to understand consumer demand and to identify those policies, regulations, and actions that are most feasible and effective, especially in low and middle income countries where there's very little experience so far. Thank you.
Great. Thank you very much, Marie, for highlighting the many different policies required to improve uh, nutritional outcomes of, uh, of food systems. It's now my pleasure to, to turn to um, Asha Gulati. Um, he serves as the emphasis chair uh, for agriculture at the Indian Council for Research on International Economic Relations. Um, Ashok is uh, an expert in many, many uh, agricultural policy topics, including this one, and he has done in particular a deep, deeper look at uh, China and India and, and their respective policies, or as he calls it, the, the dragon and the tiger. So over to you, Ashok. Thanks, Charlotte. This is dragon and the elephant, not the tiger. <laughs> wrong, wrong animal. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, pleasure to join this uh, distinguished panel and uh, my greetings to all the participants uh, who are participating in this. Uh, India and China, when you try to cover these two, think about trying to cover more than one third of uh, the global population, 35% of the population. Uh, India is right now 1.38. Uh, billion, China 1.43 billion, and by 2027, India is likely to surpass China. So we will be, the Indian economy, Indian system will be the most populous uh, by 2030, definitely, and then remain so anyway. So the first and foremost concern of a food policy and the food system is to ensure that there is enough food for the people to eat. And this is particularly so given the past history, both of China and India, they had suffered drastic consequences of lack of food. Uh, India during 1960s faced uh, literally ship to mouth uh, situation and China during the Great Leap Forward 58 to 62, lost almost 30 million lives uh, due to lack of uh, food. So given this past history, I think much of the policy environment in agriculture was geared to increase production. And since there was a lot of poverty, uh, all that was needed was to increase production, but not let the exports or, uh, uh, you know, not go for as much of exports, try to suppress prices for the uh, poor consumers. Now that is a policy uh, thanks to Jonathan who put it for OECD countries, the larger story is most of the countries out of 54, only three are there, which are putting a negative tax, you know, implicit taxation uh, on the farmers. Uh, Argentina, uh, Vietnam, and India. Uh, what does it mean? That you try to suppress the prices, their farmers are not getting the global prices because either there are export controls or there are stocking limits on the private trade or there have been earlier movement restrictions and so on and so forth. So there are different methods that are adopted to keep the prices low for the poor consumers. One can say that typically in the political economy terms, typical urban bias also, but that's a dilemma with which policymaker is struggling. Uh, if there is a lot of poverty, how to keep the prices affordable for that large segment of population, but also incentivize the farmers uh, to produce enough food. And that is normally done in Indian context, particularly by giving a lot of subsidies on inputs. 
fertilizer subsidy or free electricity or irrigation, all that. So one foot is literally on the brake to control the output prices and the other foot is really on the accelerator to give incentives to the farmers. And where does the next story fall? We are not very much sure at that time when we are doing this policy choices, but exposed when you analyze all this, you can see in the graph on the screen that uh, Indian is continuously negative. It was very little negative in 2000. In fact, in 2000, uh, uh, two, three, that period, three years, uh, it was minus 2.3, but it went all the way in 12, 13, uh, negative taxation to the tune of almost 14%, 15% of the gross farm receipts. Uh, and today, uh, the latest uh, report from uh, OECD gives uh, 6.4% negative. So there have been fluctuations, extreme negativity of incentives to the farmers, PSC being negative, and now less negative, but still negative. That means there is a clear-cut bias in the policy system towards the consumers. If you look at even the last year, 2021, because of pandemic, how much was the food subsidy bill? Uh, it was almost 31% of the total revenue of the union government. That was the level of food subsidization. 800 million people are being given literally free uh, wheat and rice. Uh, that is the level of food subsidy. Consumers are being protected and farmers are being encouraged through input subsidies, but they are not sufficient uh, to overcome the suppression of the output prices. Whereas China broke that. China was marginally positive in 2002-03, but then it went all the way up. When India was negative, China was moving up, the dark red the graph if you see, and they went all the way plus 15, 16% of the gross farm receipts around 2014-15. And after that, it has marginally come down. And in 18-20 period, it is 12.5%. So they have moved all the way from 2000, 2002, 5.2% to 12.5%. And India has gone from minus 2.3 to uh, literally minus 6.4. And if you compare the two, it's a huge uh, gap. Now, if we look to the future, where are the problems coming up? The affordability is an issue, but the instruments that are being used, uh, subsidization of food uh, goes against nutrition. It is wheat and rice, the calories, and therefore one bias against more nutritious food. But the real pressure is coming on the environment. Water table in the erstwhile green revolution states is depleting very, very fast. The similar challenges are there for China. I think there is a time now for both the countries to move away from uh, price distortions. Uh, in the Indian case, suppression of prices and in the uh, Chinese case, uh, high protection uh, on sugar or uh, you know cotton or wheat or uh, milk where the protection is almost 40 to 60 percent uh, to remove that and go for direct income transfers. I would say both countries have started moving in that direction. 
China has moved a little faster on the input subsidy front, more in terms of per acre uh, support directly uh, to the farmers as income support. India also has started off uh, income support to the farmers just a year back, uh, but uh, that is without changing the subsidy regime. And subsidy regime of inputs, uh, fertilizers and free power is creating a, a lot of problem on the environmental front. So I think the countries have to uh, look for uh, major reforms in this and the political economy in a democratic setup becomes even more difficult than perhaps in China. I'll stop there, thank you. Thank you very much, Ashok. Fascinating differences here uh, between uh, China and, and India. Uh, our last discussant um, is Leanne Jackson. She serves as the head of the Division for Agri-Food Trade and Markets, also at the OECD. Um, Leanne, we're really happy to have you with us. Um, we've asked you to kind of talk about this topic from the perspective of trade, um, as well as uh, livelihoods of uh, farmers in, in low and middle income countries. And maybe you can also refer uh, to some of the ways in which this topic or parts of this topic link to the WTO ag negotiations. Thanks for joining us, Leanne. Great, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be part of this conversation. So um, like Charlotte said, I plan to focus my remarks on the implications of reorienting agricultural support for livelihoods and trade. And also to think a little bit out loud about um, what we need to be thinking about in terms of transition, because as Joe Yo mentioned at the beginning of the session, there's also quite a strong political economy story around um, who, who benefits or who loses whenever we start to get into these policy reforms. So I'll have uh, a few reflections on the importance of having a strong evidence base and rigorous evaluation of policy trade-offs, um, talk a little bit about policy mix, for managing transitions when we're thinking about reorienting agricultural support, and then conclude with some implications for WTO discussions. So if we think a little bit first about the evidence base and rigorously evaluating trade-offs, um, it's, it's an interesting dynamic that we're in right now where we're moving to a food systems perspective, which means that we have to draw attention to the connection within food systems, but also among food systems. And it's really key that we're critically evaluating the inter interactions both within and across food systems. So what um, Jonathan was showing earlier in the session was the OECD monitoring work. And, um, and then we also heard about the analysis from IFPRI and the World Bank. Both of those analyses are shining a light on what measures countries are using to achieve their food systems objectives and what the implications could be globally. So Jonathan highlighted that we, um, the OECD showed that agricultural support policies across the 54 countries generated 720 billion US dollars per year in transfers to agriculture. And he also mentioned, and this is important, that about 75% of all positive transfers to agriculture go to individual producers. So we know that market price support also distorts trade and increases price, increasing prices cause producers to produce more of certain commodities, even if they aren't the most efficient producers globally. And of course, that means that removing support is going to have impacts on domestic farmers and also implications, potentially big implications for global markets. And this result also showed up in the modeling analysis we saw. So data and analysis um, that 
that were highlighted today are essential and they tell us where we are and what trade-offs there may be in terms of achieving food systems objectives when we start reforming policies. And so this quantification of trade-offs is really key. So now just moving to this question about the transition, um, earlier this year, um, my team at the OECD released a report called Making Better Policies for Food Systems. And one of the messages of that report is that it will be rarely the case that a single measure gets us exactly where we want to be on all the different dimensions for food systems. We should be looking for a mix of policy instruments, um, which together can get us to where we want to go. And this is particularly important when we're thinking about reorienting policies because there may be costs associated with transitions that affect particular groups. Um, so in the case of reorienting farm support policies, there are clear implications for rural livelihoods. Um, and we should keep in mind the importance of this sector on a global level. Farming accounts for 27% of total employment in 2019, and food systems jobs represent the majority of employment in many developing countries. So we need to think about what mixture of measures could address the potential downsides to farmers and other food system actors if we're removing um, measures around market support. So we could imagine, for example, moving off of policies that are providing support for um, use of inputs. And instead we could think about paying farmers for provision of ecosystem services or maybe even targeting social safety nets better and bundling all of this with public investments to improve connection to markets and trade capacity. Um, and then I, I just wanted to um, touch base on how this relates to WTO discussions. So we know, of course, that having a predictable and rules-based trade is key for shaping and potentially also for reorienting support policies. And that's not just about livelihoods, it's also because trade is really important for food security outcomes. We had an outlook report that we launched with the, with the FAO earlier this week that showed about 20% of all calories that are consumed actually cross borders. So the question is a little bit, what are the implication of implications if we're talking about transformation for existing WTO rules? Well, the current rules reflect the situation of agricultural markets from decades ago, um, and the rules particularly related to agricultural subsidies and price support include some outdated parameters. They also have um, implied limits on trade distorting support that reflect historic patterns of use, and the limits were set when the agricultural trading patterns looked very, very different. So of course, some updating of the rules could be useful. Um, and the current rules, in fact, did foresee that there would be a continuation of reform, although that has really been challenging over the past decade. Um, what we know is that many countries consider that updating the rules on WTO, up, updating WTO rules on domestic support would be useful to bring them into this new century and also to help shape um, better outcomes in the agricultural sector. But it's clear that there's a divergence across WTO members on what that updating should look like. And again, this is partly because the rules hit all countries differently in terms of what the limits are for trade disturbance support. So we need, we need the rules in order to create trust um, because they provide a common understanding of rights and obligations. They also ensure transparency in relation to how countries are implementing their agricultural policies in relation to WTO rules. So there's, monitor, there's a monitoring 
um, component to all the WTO committee work in this area. And they also can create conditions for policy evolution. So we need the rules in place in order to create trust, but we also need trust in order to be able to update the rules. And I would say that a lot of the work that um, is being profiled today um, from the OECD, from IFPRI and others, which is paying attention to where we are now with policies and what policies, if we changed our policies, what, what the world would look like. That kind of background research is really important in terms of thinking about what our future policy mix could be to address the concerns about the changes that we need to do to create conditions for um, transforming food systems. So with that, I will conclude and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much, uh, Leanne, for, for those points. So we move now um, to the Q&A um, session. We've got a lot of questions and you're, you're very welcome to, to keep putting them, uh, sending them on to us. So Ashok, not surprisingly, we have some questions about uh, India. Um, so Narendra Kumar Binda asks, uh, how can the farmers produce trade and commerce bill and the farmers agreement of price assurance and farm services bill, how can it change the Indian farmer situation? And perhaps for, for those of us in the audience who don't know the specifics of those bills, you might put them in the context of, of everything that is happening in India right now on, uh, on farm laws. And related to that question is a question from Ann Tutwiler, who uh, is working with the Just Rural Transition and is of course also very involved in, in this topic. Um, can you link the changing level of negative taxation in India to political economy challenges in the countries? And she even asks about the political bent of the government, but you may wish not to answer that part of it. <laughs> no, that's, uh, you know, uh, during this pandemic in 2020, uh, the government uh, experimented a different way of uh, marketing uh, produce in 2020, in March, April, May last year, uh, when uh, pandemic uh, scare uh, gripped the country last year. And they thought instead of uh, getting all the farmers crowded in the regulated uh, mandis, the markets uh, that are regulated, uh, let them be sold anywhere, they can be selling it anywhere. Uh, and that turned out to be a much better system and they found that farmers, the supply lines were not disrupted. And that lesson encouraged the government to come up with three laws uh, to liberate the so-called agriculture marketing system right now. Uh, there were three laws. One was the Essential Commodities Act under which at the drop of a hat, in fact, only three days back, uh, government imposed uh, stocking controls uh, on the private sector, you can't uh, store more than 200 tons of uh, pulses. Uh, even if you have imported 50,000 or 1 million tons of pulses, now within uh, you know, a few days or a few weeks, you have to get it into the market because the prices are rising. So the net result of these things is that the storage capacity is not built. And whenever the harvest comes, the prices collapse and farmers are the losers. So the government wanted to liberate that. The other was the contract farming law. If uh, the private 
players in the processing industry or in the export business or others who want to directly buy from the farmers, why to go through the money system because there's a lot of commission and the taxation part there. So it can be much more effective that directly from the farm, uh, pick it up and uh, export or process. That would be. So these laws uh, were supposed to be in favor of the farmer. Unfortunately, uh, some farmer organizations and some political parties uh, perhaps thought uh, uh, this may be going in favor of the big private sector. Uh, and uh, there has been a stalemate so much so that the Supreme Court had to intervene. And Supreme Court had to actually form a committee. Discuss the details. Uh, it's still matters in the subjects. But the overall fact is that there are farmer leaders who have been asking for this for 30 years to liberate the system. Farmers should have the right to sell his or her produce anywhere within the country and outside the country. This is the basic freedom that the farmers want. Now, there are states that do not allow potatoes to go to another state. Is that one unified market? So one nation, one market, that is the basic objective behind this. Uh, but at present, it is uh, stuck up in the political battle and Supreme Court has put it uh, in abeyance uh, for uh, till further orders uh, and the country is waiting. Whether it will get liberated or remain uh, in the stranglehold of uh, any of the commission agents and the regulated systems, uh, which actually are uh, not very much in favor of the farm. That's what my personal view. Thank, thank you very much, Ashok, for, for that uh, overview of, of what is happening, the, the debate in India. Um, Rob, I'm going to turn to you with a couple of questions on, um, on uh, pertaining to climate change. So the first one comes from Orbital Farm. Uh, Scott Bryson is asking, uh, is there a recommendation for how to invest into the allocation of technologies that mitigate um, climate change um, and, and climate volatility? Um, what, what do you recommend? Where should money be, be channeled? And related to that, um, an anonymous questioner is asking, emissions reducing technology seems vague. Uh, what are we talking about? Is this geoengineering on a global scale, changes in farm machinery or some other uh, elements? Uh, yeah, thanks, um, Charlotte. And thanks for those that uh, raised those questions. Um, of course, the study we did is not specifically about the uh, technological options, but uh, we've reviewed uh, quite a bit of literature uh, around uh, what are the options. So the first I would like to emphasize is the um, more general what I've made also in my presentation. Um, productivity and increasing um, uh, technologies in general, um, they also help reduce emissions at least per unit of output, right? As long as there's no the big production responses that would compensate uh, for that. Right? So that's also in the past um, has happened. So that's important to bear in mind. But I'm more specific in technologies um, that um, are specifically targeted emission reduction. Um, there's a whole range of, of options there. We, we know about no-till farming uh, that helps in uh, what's the main culprit in, um, in terms of emissions is livestock production. Um, there's all kinds of techniques, including uh, 
changing animal feed for, for cows, and like using seaweed that can uh, reduce emissions from methane from cow breathing by at least 40%. And so there's a whole range of these technologies. So I think the, um, the question is less about um, what's, what technologies are there. There's many technologies more. So what can we, how can we make farmers adopt them? Right, and uh, that's a much bigger question. That's where a lot of incentive to come because the the aim of reducing greenhouse gas emissions is more a global uh, objective, a global target, and uh, farmers will be inclined to do so if that doesn't come at cost of their productivity uh, or um, uh, at their profitability. That's a good example. There are some of the discussions that are ongoing in the European Union with their um, reform of the common agriculture policy, which includes also um, conditional payments to farmers in, in exchange for um, reducing use of chemical fertilizers and, and other methods of organic farming, uh, of which we, we know, at least in the short run, uh, there could be productivity um, penalty to it. So, uh, then the payment should be enough to compensate for that productivity in order to serve that common good. So um, I think that's that's the, what we're trying to bring out in the study, uh, so to bring out these questions. And of course, um, um, there's a lot more detail one could talk about technology, but a lot of them exist, but also a lot of them um, require further um, research and development uh, either to adapt them to local circumstances some of the things also Marie was talking about for uh, fruits and vegetables uh, and so on. So a lot of innovation that needs to take place to uh, implement that locally. Uh, but the bottom line is, is in, in these scenarios to, to reap the benefits, uh, we should um, try to reduce emissions um, without jeopardizing um, productivity improvements, else there will be an economic cost, and that may make the adoption of these measures more difficult. Great. Thanks. Thanks very much, uh, Rob. Jonathan, I have two questions here that 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 are well suited for you. The first one comes from uh, Natar. Um, has the OECD analyzed the cut of subsidies in Australia and New Zealand in in terms of its outcome for those countries in comparison to all the other countries that have remained with high levels of uh, of support? Interesting question. So what, what have been the other food system outcomes of that cut in subsidies in, in New Zealand and Australia? And then a related question more looking forward is from Elias Gachawe, who's resilience advisor at the, at the British Embassy of the FCDO in Ethiopia. What policy changes and revisions at the national level um, are going to be required to, to get us to where we need to go. And this, I guess, goes to your uh, other report on, on making better policies. So, so over to you, Jonathan. Yes, thanks. Uh, thanks very much for, uh, for these questions. The, I mean, the, the, the Australia and New Zealand example is a, is a very interesting one. Um, if we look at their policies, they, they were liberalized a long time ago now. I mean, we're looking at reforms that took place uh, you know, back in the 1980s. They've now got um, highly export-oriented competitive markets, competitive export um, uh, position in many, many products. So uh, the, the issues that they're in many ways confronting are, are not, um, uh, not associated with the removal of support. I mean, there were lessons that were learned uh, at the time and some of which uh, maybe uh, 
uh, are still relevant even many decades on as countries now look to reform. So for example, um, New Zealand at the time had uh, a highly protected economy across many sectors. And one of the, one of the key things is if you've, if you've got a broadly protected economy, it's much easier if you have broad-based broad liberalization so everybody jumps at once rather than that you get the sequencing wrong and that you, uh, you, you liberalize, for example, um, the agricultural sector, expose that sector to market forces, but don't uh, simultaneously uh, reduce the other goods that, uh, that farm households would be, would be paying for as expenses. So there are some lessons in terms of phasing and sequencing of reforms, but I'd say that they're, they're now firmly positioned and farmers understand that they, they have to make a living on, on the market. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't still a role for government, and uh, the government is heavily involved in uh, underwriting those elements of risk management that are not covered, but that can't be covered by farmers or by markets. That's a that's a critical role where they they would see the the, uh, the government as having a role to get uh, to get involved, and also increasingly building resilience. Um, one of the problems is that many countries that we see, when we see those support numbers, for for a number of countries, we're seeing a growth in disaster-related payments, and with climate change, disasters become more frequent over, over time. Um, but we have to understand that for many, for many countries, doubt, droughts are a regular, um, droughts and floods are a regular phenomena, and we need to find ways of building systems that are resilient to them. And so what countries, what Australia and New Zealand have been looking at in their policies is how they can strengthen farmers' capacity to absorb shocks as they come along. So that means building the infrastructure around the sector, but it also means strengthening farmers' capacities and helping them with their capacity to absorb shocks and, and market and non-market risks. So um, it's a fundamental change in the orientation of agricultural policy. It doesn't mean that there's no role for government. It's not a case of just saying, oh, liberalize and everything will be okay for farmers but it means that the government works to support them in a broadly market-oriented environment. And I think there are lessons for other countries in the way that uh, that can be implemented effectively. Um, the other, I think the other question was about broadly, more broadly, Charlotte, I'm not sure I understood more broadly about the requirements for building, building resilience or how that works in the context of restructuring. I, I didn't quite catch that. I think it's a quite general question. How, how should governments go about uh, restructuring their policies to to improve the outcomes for food systems well i mean the, the the thing is i mean just to go back to the three principles that we laid out i mean i think the the point about the price support i mean ashok uh, made the point about policies that stimulate production i mean we we need to feed a world population that will grow to over 10 billion by by 2050 uh, there's, in many cases, I mean, globally, there's no more land available. Many countries are using inputs already too intensively. So that has to come from sustainable productivity growth. So the, the price support encourages production, but it encourages unsustainable production. So we need to find ways of restructuring that support so that it can come instead, not through in extra intensification or through just expanding area, but can come through sustainable intensification. And that's that requires investment in innovation systems. So you shift the focus from 
the price, price support side of it has to go from that standpoint, uh, but it does mean more emphasis on the role of government expenditures in supporting the right kinds of innovation. Uh, the other thing is, I mean, a number of people have pointed out that, you know, the efficiency gains are one thing, but the, if you take away from one constituency, uh, that does raise significant political economy, economy issues. And the point we're trying to make in the way that extended is it's not targeted. It's not, it's not based on criteria of incomes. And in many cases, the mechanisms of support, whether it's price support or other kinds of distorting payments, they, they're not targeted to low-income farmers. So, you know, that it's a political economy issue, but it does need to be confronted. Um, and um, I can see uh, there's a broader point. Leanne, you, you wanted to come in on, on that point as well? Uh, maybe I'll, I'll just let I'll just leave it there. But I, I think, yeah, it's coming back to those those issues where it's a fundamental restructuring and repurposing of support to get a focus on the the resilience and equity impacts of policy. Sorry, Leanne. If I can, I'll just jump in for a quick a quick um, complimentary comment, which is that we had this report that came out earlier this year on making making better policies for food systems. And one of the one of the key um, findings that we were bringing forward on that is that when you're thinking about policies in a systems perspective, you really have to stop thinking about siloed policies. So just as a complement to what Jonathan was saying about moving off of this um, distorting ag support, if you're if in your mind you're still thinking about um, having enough food, making sure you have livelihoods um, and doing it all environmentally sustainably, it may be that there are other parts of policies that aren't sitting in the ag ministry that are going to help you create the bundle of policies you need in order to move the food, um, food, food system transformation forward. So um, again, it's this issue of also helping governments think about breaking down those silos and getting different parts of governments talking to each other so that they understand where the policy synergies are and where there are trade-offs that need to be addressed in some way. Thanks. Great, thanks, thanks to both of you, Jonathan and, and Leanne. Um, Yo, if I could ask you to come in, um, we've had a couple of questions about the purpose of repurposing, if you will. Um, and and they're, they're both essentially going in the same direction, that, that farming is not simply about producing food, as important as it is, but it's really an ecosystem service. And, and can we, how can we perhaps switch our thinking um, so that agricultural support is actually becomes a payment for, for those ecosystem services? How can we pay farmers for environmental uh, outcomes and, and maybe related to that is, is this question of political economy. I mean, we all know that uh, support to farmers in, in wealthy countries, uh, as, as well as in, in emerging economies, is an important political consideration. So if, if we can still make payments to farmers, but, but switch the, the, the reason for why those payments are being made or, or provide an additional reason, would, would that perhaps provide a way forward here? Um, well, I think to, to some extent that is going on already in uh, different countries, right? The, I think there's also um, there's also a large difference in this. So for example, if you compare the United States with the EU, um, 
basically the environmental issues uh, in the U.S. farm bill have, have been there since the 1930s, really, when there was like, uh, when they have major trouble, uh, environmental issues. Uh, <clears throat> and so they have been integrated in the farm bill to a much longer extent or much more at the heart, I think, of farm bills going forward. This is in the EU. It's a relatively new thing. I mean, new, <laughs> we're talking about the last couple of, of, of reforms that we've had. But in the meantime, this goes back also 15, 20 years now, I think. Um, I mean, there has been a significant shift, if you look at it, over the past uh, reforms of, of the common agriculture policy in the, in the EU. The thing is that what we're looking at now is it's a, it's a fundamental shift, okay? I think just, just basically making changes at the margin is not good enough. We really have to rethink, uh, make a much bigger uh, move there. Also, if you look at the funding, I mean, what Rob showed, the importance of making investments in, in R&D, there is not much going on there. I mean, it still remains relatively small in, uh, in the U.S. part of the overall uh, CAP uh, budget. So I think we have to, um, what I think is, is important going forward is really trying to come up with new coalitions in, in this debate and bringing in people which have or groups which have traditionally not participated in the, the agriculture policy debate and bring them into the room and into the decision making. But these things are, I mean, they, they, are, they, they sound easily and they, 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 uh, they sound logical to do. But if you look in practice how policy is made and how different groups in society participate in the discussions, I mean, these things are obvious, often more complicated than we sometimes anticipate that they would be. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Liam, if I can bundle um, two questions for you. Um, one has to do with, um, you know, should we perhaps be thinking about subsidizing the production of healthy foods, so fruit and vegetables, for example? Um, and are there perhaps some uh, unintended uh, impacts that that could have on, on farmers in other parts of the world? And then another question pertains here to the WTO. Um, what mechanisms and institutions do you believe are needed to help build the trust needed to rethink WTO rules? Wow, two great questions. Um, on the first one, um, so I think the question sort of implied the answer that I would give, which is that whenever you're thinking about subsidies, you have to think about what the unintended consequences of those subsidies will be. So you're going to have some effect on prices, but there might be spillover effects in other in other markets. So in order to really understand that. I mean, you, you have to really dig into the evidence and, and what we've seen historically um, when, you look at, when you look at domestic support is that, um, that subsidization has quite a few negative spillovers outside the domestic market, but sometimes also within the domestic market. So you just have to really be careful when you're thinking about um, putting those kinds of measures in place. In terms of mechanisms for the WTO, I mean, this is this is the big question, right? Like, how do we how do we revitalize the the debate and dialogue that in a constructive way in that forum? And I think you know, there's kind of new things happening in the WTO with a new leadership, um, which is creates an interesting opportunity. I think. I also think that there could be, and this links to the event that we're in right now. There could be interesting ways of thinking about feeding in more data and evidence 
into those kinds of deliberative processes so that, um, so that the, the members at the table, the stakeholders at the table have at their hands similar information and they can chew on the questions that they're trying to struggle with based on similar information. And we know that in the Uruguay round, this was, this was the kind of thing that happened. There was a nice kind of partnership between what the OECD was producing in terms of information and what was happening in the negotiating forums in Geneva. Um, so I think that there's quite an interesting aspect um, if we are really engaging with this idea that we need to be repurposing support, thinking about how organizations that are in the business of developing evidence and analysis can feed that kind of evidence analysis into those deliberations. Thank you. Great, thanks, thanks, Leanne. I think it's time for us to, to turn to Schengen Fan for his concluding remarks. He has the difficult task of, uh, of summarizing everything we've uh, highlighted in the course of the discussion and maybe charting a little bit the, the, the path forward in what's going to be required to, to bring this concept uh, um, forward in the in the UN Food System Summit, and if I can add an additional question, Schengen, which I think is a very important one that's coming um, through through the audience, and it pertains to Africa. I know you're you're going to talk about China, of course, but you're also an, an expert on Africa. And the question comes from um, Professor Nyangwezo: Is repurposing alone enough to address the sustainability challenges in Africa? agri-food systems, considering that there is uh, really very little uh, or any uh, support provided to, to farmers in those countries. So many thanks, uh, Schengen, for, for concluding uh, our, our event today. Thank you, Charlotte. It's an impossible job to summarize or to wrap up what we have discussed. It's very rich. And it's also a very timely discussion. You know, we are at the eve of the global food system pre-summit or summit. So providing information, data, and evidence will be very critical for a successful summit. Now, I have several brief sort of a wrap-up uh, points. So number one is, yes, our food systems are facing challenges, probably we, uh, the challenges we have never seen before. That requires the sort of rapid transformation of our policy. So it's just a marginal improvement. It's not good enough. And Jonathan mentioned that with $720 billion subsidy in the meantime, we are not address, addressing you know, food insecurity, malnutrition, uh, natural resource degradation, climate change, and so on. So we must do things differently. We must do things differently, drastically, particularly in transforming our policy. So that's uh, my sort of overarching message I heard. Now, we have several ways to move forward. So number one is to repurpose current subsidies for better nutrition, better health, better environment, and climate mitigation. Here, I want to emphasize the innovations. Innovations will be critical in achieving all these different purposes. So we have several balls in the, in the air we have to grab, we have to juggle. So innovations. So for example, some of the technologies from, you know, uh, from CGIR, from some of the NARS, China, and India, can achieve multiple wind goals. I, I call them multiple wind technologies. So wind in yield, wind in clim climate mitigation, and a wind in nutrition. So another technologies we must promote. So innovations will be so critical. So obviously 
removing price support and use that money for for let's say for income direct income transfer and for for um, environmental compensation other way to go so that's my number one uh, key uh, takeaway message number two is on diets I think Marie really emphasized how important nutritious foods and the diets um, that's in our food system so again uh, can we repurpose some of the subsidies to support, I don't say subsidize, to support the production and consumption and the intake of nutritious foods. So just for your information, we have done some studies in China to look at the, the, the national dietary guidelines. So simply to follow national dietary guidelines, millions and millions of people, the death of millions and millions of people will be avoided because of reduced uh, non-communicable diseases, overweight, obesity, and so on. But interestingly enough, the carbon footprints, the carbon emission will also be reduced by almost 20%. So it's a win-win. So if you follow the national dietary guidelines to consume your food, so you will reduce your health costs. But in the meantime, it will, also, it will also help to reduce the carbon emission. So it's a win-win. Can we do better in the future? to make sure that national dietary guidelines take into consideration of both nutrition, health, and the environment or climate change. So my number three takeaway message is trade. Trade is very critical. Trade can optimize the production you know, of, of food production in different places in order to minimize the carbon emissions, in order to minimize, let's say, the environmental footprints. But we know that the different places have different carbon footprints from our food production. So trade will be very critical. Now, obviously trade um, will bring certain issues. Some may lose, some may gain from that. So the, the more inclusive trade. And I, I suggest that in the next round of WTO negotiation, we take into consideration of the environment and nutrition and health into the trade negotiation. So not simply just for efficiency purpose. Then num my number four point is a political economy issues. When we move towards a food system approach, then we will engage different players, the players from agriculture, from health, nutrition, trade, environment, finance, and so on. But do we have, what's current, do we have a governance mechanism to coordinate all these efforts across different, different ministries? So China is beginning to do that, the moving from the coordination for rural development agriculture to the whole food system. I think at a global level, at a national level, we need that coordination mechanisms. And then obviously building the coalitions to make sure that uh, the people who benefit from the trade transformation of, sorry, from food system transformation will help to promote the tra transition. And we can also try to find ways to compensate who might lose from, that's from the food system transformation. So really move forward uh, that transition uh, by building a coalition. Now, num my number five message is moving from global to national to community. And then Shana, you mentioned about Africa, asking me to address Africa questions. Or Asha dive into China and India. I think we need much better, better data, much deeper analysis, much better propositions on transforming the food system or repurposing subsidies. The context just very different. For Africa, I think right now, 
the, the subsidy in agriculture in Africa is still very small. Yeah, mostly in the input subsidy, fertilizer subsidies. So can we do better? Can we work with Africans to make sure that the limited government resources are used for this increasing farmers' uh, income, help improve the nutrition and diets of vulnerable population, and so on. I think before Africa moves to more subsidies, probably it's time to think how can we do things differently. And my final message is, you know, as economists or as a policy analyst, we must embrace the food system approach. I think IPRI is really ahead of a lot of institutions. You know, we, you know, we work on nutrition, we work on diets, we work on climate change, we work on smallholders' income, and so on, using the food system approach. We must make sure that everybody else will use that approach. That there are different players, there are trade-offs, there are synergies. Can we propose a package, package of policy options or a mixed instrument there, as Nian said, to make sure that you know, we, you know, we propose certain policy to achieve all the goals together. So as economists, I think I'm sometimes I'm a bit very critical about ourselves. We have not embraced that full system approach uh, to the way we really want it. For example, the planetary boundaries, the climate change, uh, the, the loss of biodiversity. How can we mainstream internalize all these externalities in our analysis? And they are not reflected in our current curriculum, in our, in, in our teaching, in our research. So I really enjoyed this. Thank you, Charlotte. I also thank all the presenters. And I really hope that uh, you know, the summary of this uh, discussion will be uploaded to the Food System Summit website and to be used as part of the inputs in the Food System Summit. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Shengen, for, for uh, summarizing uh, the discussion. And yes, that we will certainly submit a, a uh, overview of the discussion to the science group, uh, which is, of course, also very, very interested in, in this topic. Um, so let me also thank all the speakers, the discussants, uh, our very engaged audience for all of your questions. And, uh, and a big thank you also to the uh, IFRI event management team. And have a great rest of your day, wherever you may be. Thank you so much.